Welcome into the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. It is Friday, September the 6th, 8 a.m. Eastern, 5 a.m. on the West Coast, all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in. Today is going to be a busy day. We're going to be talking through a bunch, a bunch of U.S. soccer issues And we're going to try to see if we can figure out some uh, possible solutions. And there are a lot of issues that we got to talk through. This is going to be a little bit of a different episode than normal, um, whether that's, uh, you know, having guests on and talking about different aspects of their soccer experience or soccer work. Today, uh, we are going to be looking at some issues and kind of going through them bit by bit. And uh, seeing where we can uh, where we can land this thing and uh, and try to find some some progress uh, within U.S. soccer. The first thing that we want to jump into today is the U.S. women's national team. So the U.S. women's national team they win the World Cup again, and now even before that that victory, before the World Cup begins, we have a lawsuit. And the dates have come out. If nothing gets settled, it's due to to begin trial in the spring of 2020. A very similar lawsuit was brought previously by Hope Solo as uh, she first initiated these uh, these conversations and and fighting the Federation uh, on her own. And her trial begins in October of uh, 2019, so this fall. So hers is the first trial to kick off. And depending on what happens with that trial, will will likely have an effect on the U.S. Women's National Team trial uh, with their official case in the spring. Uh, the in excuse me, the USL versus UPSL trial. Uh, unless there's a settlement there is is set to kick off in 2020 as well as uh, more than likely in 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 probably summer to fall 2020 the NASL versus US soccer case uh, would be kicking off in 2020 because their discovery ends uh, period ends in January so US soccer has a has quite a few legal battles and they they these legal battles are of their own making their own fault um and and so this is this is what what we have this is this is the governance and and leadership uh of u.s soccer on full display and it's it's not a pretty sight for the federation uh, when when you look at the issues and why these things are, are are going to trial, why we have these issues in legal action in the first place. One of the areas that I first want to kick off with is this U.S. Women's National Team case. This case has to do with equal pay, and that is what has been discussed publicly, but it, it really... Uh, should include the idea of equal treatment. And here's here's what I mean by that. The women's national team have a different pay structure than the men. And part of that, that different pay structure has to do with the fact that, that U.S. soccer 
puts money towards the NWSL and, and pays some of the women's national team uh, salaries in the NWSL and do some different things. But when you look at the way the contracts are structured between the two, the men earn a higher amount of money, more amount of money than, than the women do from the Federation. And, and part of that has to do with the way certain milestones are reached. So for example, on the men's side, just for showing up for winning, even in a friendly, you know, you have these different payouts and so the thresholds are very, very much lowered on the men's side. On the women's side, the the thresholds are higher. And, and so you have not just an equal pay issue, but treatment. You also see this in the way that the two national teams are handled on training. So in the past, you've had the women's national team training in, in local parks or, or at a high school. The men train at a you know college or university or at a professional um, facility. The women would travel and coach. The men would travel in first class or a chartered flight. The women would stay at a three-star hotel. The men would be at a five-star hotel. Um, so you see like these things playing out over and over again it's not just about the pay inequity it's also about the treatment inequity so when when we look at that we see the case with hope solo coming up and we see what's happening in the spring one of the problems with u.s soccer is they bring this on themselves and then when they when they get hit with their actions, meaning someone stands up, speaks up, stands up to them and says, hey, this isn't cool. This isn't right. This needs to change. Instead of coming to the table with a posture of, okay, let's sort out what we what we did wrong or what you think we did wrong and let's see if we can find you know, a path forward. Instead of having that posture, they put walls up they put guards up and they want to fight you and and so the u.s women's national team case hope solo's case they could be and i think should be resolved uh between them and the fed the, the parties in the federation and the federation should not be trying to hide behind past negotiations and such because those negotiations came from that posture of no we're not here to to cooperate we're here to pay you as little as we can and 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 you have to understand that when the federation says well this is what we negotiated in the past you have to understand what goes beyond or behind the scenes with those negotiations threats to the players like you know if you push this you're never going to play for the national team again. If you pursue this, or if you or, or if you try to make uh, a big stink out of this, then we're going to blackball you from the program. These threats have been issued for decades to the men and the women uh, of the of the national teams, 
And and so when the Federation comes back later and tries to hide behind, you know, a, a, a negotiated agreement, it's not really telling the truth. It's not playing fair either. So when the legal challenges come, they're like, well, you know, we, we, we have this, we have this negotiation that we had and here's this agreement, but it was coerced. I mean, you're using threats against players to get your way. That's not a fair and equitable negotiation. So the women should be fighting this. They should be standing up. The one area where I think the women are messing up is they've been a bit naive in giving deference to Carlos Cordero. The guy's been around the Federation for a decade. Now, he and and the insiders of U.S. soccer came up with a story, a narrative, that, yeah, he was around the Federation, but he was an independent director. You, you can't be an independent director and the guy that is over the money of the Federation. Like, you're involved in the decisions. Like, you're part of the board. You're not an outsider. When you've been around for 10 years on the board, you're an insider. You're a board member. You are one of us. So that narrative was false. Not only that, this idea that, you know, um, he needs time. He won the election in 2018. It's been a year and a half. He's had time. He's had time to go and get things done. What has he done? He's formed a committee for youth soccer, which we'll get to later. What has he done? If you want to claim that the 2026 World Cup is something that he did, that was happening one way or the other. FIFA was bringing that that baby to the to to the U.S. after you know what happened with you know Qatar in 2022. That that was coming to the U.S. That was a done deal. It didn't matter which candidate won that 2018 election. It could have been any of the 50 that ran. And I say 50 uh, in, in a joking way, but there were, there's quite a few candidates. It didn't matter which of those candidates won. The U.S. was winning that bid. So Carlos was not responsible for that. What has he done? The women's national team players, I... They have this relationship. Carlos has has formed a relationship where he he personally tries to escape blame, put it off on others, and obfuscate. And the women keep falling for it and saying, you know, well, we you know, no offense to Carlos, or we want to. Carlos is the leader. Carlos Cordero is the leader of U.S. soccer. He's the president of the board. It's nothing personal. It's the position. I get it if Carlos was still claiming to be an independent director. That's one thing. When you are the leader of the federation as the president of the federation, 
the buck stops with you. So if if the women's national team is wanting to to really fight for equal pay and equal treatment, this idea of of giving Carlos a pass that he's only been in office for a year and a half, those are excuses he's giving them. That's time wasting coming from him saying trying trying to get the heat off of him. It's a it's a it's a classic ta- stall tactic that weak leaders often will try to use. They'll try to say I need more time, give me more time and you know I'm on your side. And it, and it's this kind of it, 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 instead of just going, you know what? Let's handle this. This shouldn't even be in court. Like what what is the issue? Let's figure it out. Let's find a solution. That should be the posture of our federation. And that doesn't matter whether it's the U.S. Women's National Team or anyone else. That should be the posture of our our relationship with the federation. If you are a state association or a local club and you have an issue, you should be able to go to your federation and say, look, I have an issue. Here it is. And the federation should have this posture of, okay, how can we help? Let's solve this. Let's figure out the solution. Part of the problem that we have in the Federation goes back to what we were talking about yesterday, which is worldview. And the worldview of U.S. soccer is that not all constituents are created equal. There is favoritism. There is preferential treatment. And that philosophy, that worldview, plays itself out time and time again. It plays itself out between the men's national team and the women's national team. It plays itself out in the way that Major League Soccer is treated versus other professional leagues. It plays itself out in the way that that U.S. soccer deals with the development academy. Time and time again, this philosophy, this worldview that not all constituents, not all members of U.S. soccer are are treated equally, are created equally, plays itself out. So our women's national team, I think they're they're fighting the right fight. I just, not because I want this thing to be personal or adversarial with Carlos Cordero, but what I do think they should, should, should drop is this deference to Carlos. I, I just, I don't understand why even make the comments, just say, look, this is what we expect from our Federation. And we expect Carlos as the leader of the Federation to step up and, uh, and, and help us find a solution. That's nothing personal. That's just acknowledging you're you're the leader of the federation. We have an issue. We have a grievance. Let's sort it out and and leave it at that. Um, you know, I think that's where where that should be. Speaking of you know issues, um, and and when we when we get to the professional council, there's several issues, and some of those issues have to do with the treatment, but it also has to do even with 
the treatment affecting voting. And we are going to get to that uh, right after uh, this break. Um, looking at the professional council of us soccer and some of the issues going on there are are very similar to the us men's national team us women's national team issues so uh look forward to to jumping into that in just a moment but before we do our our sponsor this half hour is ducktig brand d-u-k-t-i-g brand.com use promo code d-w show and you will get 10 percent off of your order at ducktigbrand.com d-u-k-t-i-g igbrand.com use promo code DW show get 10% off your order get your soccer notebook help as a coach as a parent as a player raise your game to the next level or those in your charge we'll be right back after this Thanks for tuning in on this Friday, September the 6th. I hope you're uh, ready to have a great weekend. For most of you, I'm I'm sure that it is is not a four-day weekend like last weekend, but I'm I'm confident that those of you out there are going to find a way to have a good weekend. Um, And uh, for those of you who are are still dealing with the... uh, the aftermath of Dorian, the oncoming reign of Dorian, etc. Um, you know, hopefully uh, things work out for you. Um, been there, and uh, it's not it's not fun. And the people of the Bahamas uh, certainly our our thoughts and prayers are with them. And uh, there are a lot of organizations that are trying to help and 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 offer assistance. And uh, I would encourage all of us to uh, take a moment this weekend and uh, and find one of those organizations. Uh, you may not have a lot of money, so maybe it's time. Maybe it's just sitting down and sharing uh, some of their posts 
on social media. So, you know, you may not have an extra hundred bucks to, to give towards, um, you know, an initiative to, to help those that have been uh, deeply affected by Dorian. But there are, there are things we can always do. Um, and, you know, I, it really comes down to, 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 to three ways. You can obviously uh, help financially, but you can also help through donating your time. And so you may not be able to get to the Bahamas, but maybe you can just spend some time on social media this weekend, sharing posts to, to your network uh, to help alert others in ways that they can, they can uh, help financially, those that, that can help financially. So that's one way. And then another way is through, you know, your, your abilities, your talents, your gifts. Uh, so, so maybe it's helping create, you know, some media uh, that, that supports uh, the, the cleanup efforts and the, the charity efforts uh, there in the Bahamas and other areas that are affected. So, um, you know, I would encourage all of us to try to take a moment this weekend and help out. It's just uh, complete and utter de- devastation there in the Bahamas, and um, and and we should uh, we should definitely try to do what we can to help. So, uh, back to our our uh, program today. We are looking at U.S. soccer issues, and uh, we spent the first segment talking about the U.S. women's national team. And some of the the pay disparities and the treatment disparities um, within the national team setup between the men and the women. But there's more. When we look at the professional council, we find that this same disparity plays itself out again. The professional council is uh, is a is is a part of a council system that U.S. Soccer created. Um, not too long ago, when you look at their total history, uh, it, it was formed in the, the late 90s, the current version that we see. And there are four primary councils. There is the professional council. There is the youth council, the adult council, and the athlete council. And collectively, those four councils are responsible collectively for about 95% of the overall vote in U.S. soccer elections or U.S. soccer, uh, you know, decision-making when it goes beyond, when it goes to the floor of the members, the councils represent 95% roughly of that vote. So when you when you look at how, how can a president win an election, how does a vice president win an election, um, how do measures get passed, this is how these play out. So you have four primary councils. Professional council is one of them, and that's the one we're going to look at first. And the professional council is broken up membership-wise between the leagues that are sanctioned professionally. That includes the men's side, so that's Major League Soccer, the USL Championship, the USL League One, and then on the women's side, the NWSL. Now, in the past, that also included the NASL, 
and did not include USL League One because that's that that's relatively new. And then coming up, you will have NISA, a Division Three league, joining, and they will be in the professional council. When you look at the way the vote split up, it's not split up equally. So right now you have the Major League Soccer, USL Championship, USL League One, and NWSL all sharing roughly 25% of the overall vote in the election. But the leagues don't get equal say within the council. So the way U.S. Soccer has handled this is they have said the council that is that the, the excuse me the the professional league that is sanctioned as Division One gets a higher percentage of the vote, and then we're going to stagger that each level down. So one gets a big chunk, two gets a lesser chunk, three gets an even smaller chunk. Now, setting that aside, you could argue semantics over that. Is that a good way to do it? Is it the wrong way to do it? In an open system, uh, if you're only talking about three levels, I would prefer that they each have an equal say within that council. If you're talking about a closed system and you want to make sure that Major League Soccer succeeds no matter what, this is the worldview of of U.S. soccer that we talked about yesterday, then you allocate more power to the top league so that within the professional council, they become the gatekeeper. Okay, so let's set aside the men for a second. You've got MLS, USL Championship with lesser voting power, USL League One with even lesser voting power. Now, one of the other factors they put into this is attendance, uh, the size of the league, etc. That also factors into how they come to agreements on voting power. But let's set all of that aside for just a moment. Included in this professional council is the women's council, the women's leagues, women's professional soccer. Currently, that only is represented as the NWSL. They are Division I U.S. Professional Women's Soccer League, and they're the only professional soccer league on the women's side. They are Division I, but they are have been given men's Division II voting power. So not only do we see the inequities, the inequities on the U.S. women's national team pay and treatment compared to their male counterparts, we're seeing this same issue play itself out in the professional council. And this is something that has not been legally pursued yet. But I think the NWSL players could push this because within the professional council, Major League Soccer and the NWSL are both Division One, but the NWSL has a fraction 
of Major League Soccer's voting power. They are on the level of the USL. Major League Soccer in the last in the 2018 election had the majority of the 25% of the voting power within the professional council. So the way that the things split up within the the setup there in the last election is the NASL had about 1.6% voting power. The USL had around five. I think the NWSL had around five. I think my numbers are right, if I remember correctly. And then MLS had the rest. So when you look within the professional council, not only do we see this cascading of diminishing power going down level one, level two, level three on the men's side. But when we compare apples to apples, division one men versus division one women within the professional council, we see that major league soccer, even in that setup is given preference over the NWSL. So you have a situation where the professional council does not give equal representation within the council. It also doesn't give a, a equal representation from a male to female standpoint within the council. So on the men's side, you have MLS with the majority of the voting power, USL, on the same level as USL, you have the NWSL, so on and so forth. So when we look at the way the professional council is constructed, Major League Soccer, by themselves, through their own voting power and their influence due to that voting power, have sway and control from a de facto standpoint, over 25% of the overall vote in the election. Now, keep in mind, most of the measures, including elections, only require a 50% plus one vote to pass. So Major League Soccer, in a de facto state, controls half of the vote required to win think about that for a minute the federation has granted to one private organization the ability to determine its own leadership now when you're sitting there thinking, okay, well, I mean, how many people are, are involved in all this? You're talking about a lot of organizations. You have 55 state associations. You have other member organizations. Of the 55 state associations, they have representation in the adult council and the youth council. 
Some states are considered to be joint associations, which means that they administer adult and youth. And then there are a lot of states, most states, that have separate state associations for adult and youth. Now, we could spend uh, an entire week worth of shows about the adult and youth councils and the way they're set up in the different states and all this stuff. And we will get to them eventually at some point. But the point is there's 95 state associations and that's just within U.S. adult soccer and in U.S. youth soccer split between those two organizations, which are part of the two councils. But then you have U.S. club soccer, USSA, and others that all have votes. Then you have national leagues like the NPSL that have votes. So we give Major League Soccer one organization effective control or or influence over 25% of the overall vote in an election to one organization, which is half of what is needed to win an election. And we wonder why U.S. soccer holds a belief that MLS must succeed no matter what. Because it has been infiltrated by Major League Soccer, apologists, MLS believers, former MLS executives, and they want to make sure that MLS stays in charge. So the worldview gets perpetuated. MLS must succeed no matter what. So the professional council, 25% roughly of the overall vote, majority of which goes to MLS, which then gives them de facto control and influence over that 25% of the overall vote. And we have the same type of situation between the U.S. women's national team and the U.S. men's national team playing out between the NWSL and MLS. So professional council, in my view, we need to revisit. One of the things I think we need to look at with the professional council is if you are going to tier your voting power within the council, meaning on a divisional basis, Major League Soccer is going to get, you know, uh, as as the first division league, they're going to get three votes. The USL Championship as Division 2 gets two votes. USL League 1 as the third division gets one vote. And then NISA comes in they have to split that one vote with USL League One because they're both sharing Division Three status. If you want to run some kind of scenario like that, okay, fine. But when you go over to the women's side, if you have a women's Division One league, they should be getting three votes. Plain and simple. Now, if you don't want them to get three votes and you're going to run a tiered system, then don't sanction their league as Division One. Say, they're not up to par 
with Division One men's. They're really on the level of our Division Two men. So we're going to sanction them as Division Two. Maybe eventually they'll be good enough that we can move them up to one. But for now, we're going to leave them at two because they're not quite there yet. And that's going to have them voting with, with two votes instead of three. Now, we could argue that as well. But I find it very difficult for U.S. soccer to hold the posture that the NWSL, we are going to consider a Division I women's professional league, but we're going to treat them, when it comes to voting, as a second or third level men's side or men's league in voting representation. That's a real issue. And it's it's a mirror. It's it's the same type of thing we're seeing between the men's and the women's national teams playing out within the professional council. So I think I think that is one area that we need to get corrected. We need to fix within the professional council the voting representation of how these leagues are allocated within their twenty five percent of the council, how they are allocated voting power and creating a scenario that is giving due representation to the NWSL as major league soccer. Our sponsor this half hour is charity water. You can learn more about charity water at charitywater.org. They provide clean drinking water to people all over the world. And, um, they are an incredible organization to join and be a part of and support. And I would encourage you to do that uh, as well. Uh, coming up after the break, we have, um, we have the opportunity to get into a subject. Uh, and I was reminded about this uh, looking at a tweet, I believe it was yesterday. Someone was asking about the athlete council. And a few months ago, I wrote a reform for the athlete council that takes into effect uh, and, and into account the Ted Stevens Act, which is the law that uh, requires U.S. soccer to, to have athlete representation, but at the same time reform the council to be more responsive to the, to the athletes within U.S. soccer and to provide more accountability and oversight. So we're going to jump into that right after the break with the Athlete Council uh, because they and they alone play a really, really big part in these elections as they did in 2018, giving Carlos Cordero the win in that election when they had an opportunity to, to actually pick reform. They didn't do that. And they have not been held accountable since, and they won't be under their current setup. So that's what we're going to get into after the break uh, with, uh, with Charity Water. So we'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world we know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth and when you can bring water into communities it truly transforms them it changes everything and you could know that you would made a difference you could know that you had truly impacted the lives 
of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Thanks for tuning in on this Friday, September the 6th. Hope everyone has a great weekend. Again, as I said after the last break, if you can, find some time this weekend to uh, to volunteer with your time, your money, maybe even your ability to create media, uh, whatever, to uh, to help the people in the Bahamas and other places affected by Dorian. Um, I think it would be uh, a small part we could all play in a really big, big thing. So... Getting back to uh, our show today, we're doing a little bit different show where we are looking at U.S. soccer and some of the, the issues facing U.S. soccer, and we're going to wrap up uh, today's episode looking at the Athlete Council. Uh, yesterday, someone had asked something about the Athlete Council on, on Twitter, and uh, I responded um, with... Uh, a comment and a link to an article, a blog post that I'd put up uh, a while back. And um, the the idea is like, we've got to fix the Athlete Council, right? A lot of people are coming to this realization that the Athlete Council, um, the, the, the very nature of the, the governance and setup of the Athlete Council uh, lends itself to, to corruption. And the... The current way it's set up, if you're asking yourself, why would you say it's set up for corruption? Uh, Here's why. The Ted Stevens Act requires athlete representation within U.S. soccer. However, that athlete representation does not include just any athlete. So your 10-year-old daughter is not up for the ability to represent on the athlete council. Um, if you are a professional soccer player in major league soccer, more than likely you're not going to be on the athlete council either. So who is the Ted Stevens act requires that the athlete representation um, is someone an athlete who um, who is basically a member of the national team program. So 
the way that U.S. soccer lays this out, and, and, and in this blog post, I kind of put out, uh, you know, some of some of this this stuff here. And when you look at it, um, you find that the way that that they are nominated and the way that they are um, selected, the pool that they are selected from, are athletes that are basically from the national team program. And the reason why is that the Ted Stevens Act has to do with the U.S. Olympic Committee. This is a very important piece of this. If U.S. soccer was not a member of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, it would not be required to have athlete representation. The Ted Stevens Act governs amateur sports as related to the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. So if they were not running the Olympic program, U.S. soccer, and that was a separate entity, they wouldn't even be required to have this provision of having athlete representation. So one of the things that you have to understand to, to, to wrap your head around where we are with the athletes and who's serving and who's eligible to serve, these athletes are, are basically coming from a very, very small pool of, of players. It's not from the millions of registered players within U.S. soccer. It's from the, the few hundred. And when I say few hundred, I mean low hundreds of of players that uh, meet these requirements um, to to serve on the athlete council, so it it's in a very similar way, similar to president of the United States. So you can you have a lot lower threshold to, to run for mayor in your local town or city or city council or school board uh, there's there's more restrictions when it comes to like state level government or a governor uh, governorship and then to run for Congress there's an even you know higher threshold of certain things that you have to do to run for president is pretty restrictive like in terms of the, the requirements like you have to be at least 35 so there's an age requirement there uh that, that you you have to fulfill the citizenship requirements so um you know if you were if if you move to this country and at 10 years old and later became a u.s citizen you would be ineligible to run for president of the united states more than likely so th- there are a lot of elements here at at play to how you could run for president of the u.s the athletes council in a similar fashion not identical but in a similar fashion has a has those same type of requirements but they're even more restrictive in terms of the amount of people that can meet those requirements so the way that the council set up is that the the athletes um, who fulfill these requirements, um, the small group is is who 
works on this council. They are the ones that are representing athletes, but it's really national team athletes. And that's the way it's currently constructed. That's the way we really should approach this to call it an athlete council is a disservice to our millions of registered players in this country. If we're going to call it what it is in the way that it's currently set up, we should call it the national team athlete program. So an athlete must be 18 years of age to serve on the athletes council and athletes may determine the number of representatives on the athletes council. These athletes have to meet the definition of the Ted Stevens act to serve on the athlete council. So when, when we look at the composition of the athlete council and we look at who gets to be on there and, and how they're elected, here is how the process works right now. The way the process works right now is that those athletes who are eligible through the Ted Stevens Act meaning they've been on the national team, they've been in the national team program, etc. And it's been within so many years, either they're currently playing or within so many years of their playing, they can be on this, this athlete council. Now, those who vote on this are those same athletes. So if you are a 19-year-old pro and you're playing for St. Louis FC in the USL Championship and you're not in the national team program, you don't get to vote for the athletes on the Athlete Council that are supposed to be representing you at the federation level. Instead, Jazzy's artist gets to vote for Brad Guzan to represent him on the athlete council. So when we look at representation on the national teams, what if all of our players, our best players went to Europe and they were the only players in this hypothetical situation, only players that we're selected for the national team for, for the next five years, 10 years, right? So all of our best players said, you know what? MLS is just not good enough. We are going to Europe. We are going to play in Europe. What would happen over time? What would happen is MLS would have no athletes on the athlete council representing MLS because all these players would be foreign based players with national team service, they would be the ones in selecting themselves to be on the athlete council. They would not be beholden to major league soccer because they're over there playing, right? This is not a primary reason why MLS players get selected to the national team over some players that you look at and go, why, why is that player not getting selected? I mean, he's playing in a better league 
Champions League, doing well. Why is he not getting a call up? Why is this MLS player that's not doing so great getting a call up? I'm not saying that is a direct piece of this uh, at all. But what I am saying is, is that this is a byproduct of what happens in those situations. So when a Greg Berhalter brings in some MLS players and you're like, that's the best we got. It may not be the best we got, but by keeping those MLS players there, what happens as a result is that MLS players stay in this pool of eligible, eligible players to be on the athlete council and vote on the athlete council. Because if you're not eligible to serve on the council, you can't even vote for the council. And this is where I think we need to do some reform. We need to create a player Congress. And, and the way that we need to do that is very simple, very quick and easy to understand. Create a player Congress in this way. You have to be compliant with the Ted Stevens Act. So we know that the athletes that have to serve on the actual athlete council of the U.S. Soccer Federation that get 20% of the overall vote have to be from the national team program. The only way to change that is to change the Ted Stevens Act. That's a, that's a U.S. law. That's not a U.S. soccer law. That is a U.S. government law. So that council, for, for, for the purposes of this conversation, has to be left as national team players serving in that level. But if we think of them in the same way that we think of the requirements to be a president, then it's like, okay, yes, we're going to, we're going to put Brad Guzan on the athlete council, but it's not Brad Guzan and his fellow MLS players that are national team players putting him on the council. It's the athletes of America who have voted in their own player Congress who then nominate and vote for Brad Guzan to be on the athlete council. So what instead we create is a, is a system of representative government for athletes in U.S. soccer. At the top level, you have the athletes that are eligible to serve on the athlete council. Those 20 athletes, those players uh, that, that, like a Stu Holden, who is on the athlete council, he's at that level. He meets the requirement. He's in the athlete council pool of, of eligible players. But the way that he gets nominated and elected occurs by giving each state, for example, two representatives or one. You can give them one. You can give each state, state of Alabama, the state of Arizona, the state of Alaska, the state of California, they all get one vote. So within the state, they nominate an athlete. It could be anyone. It could be a retired professional. It could be an amateur player. It doesn't matter. You just, you have to meet the requirements set up to run, to be on the player Congress. Once elected, the 50 of you are the ones who nominate the athlete for the athlete council. And the 50 of you are the ones who then vote on which 20 athletes serve 
on the athlete council. So now what we do by doing that is we create a level of accountability. We also get rid of this cesspool of potential issues, conflicts of interest, the the uh, the the ability for US soccer and MLS to have undue influence on the athlete council by offering jobs to the athletes and and offering uh, other incentives to athletes this is where we get into the issues and the allegations surrounding the athlete council that they're compromised so instead the the issue that we see right now is these 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 council members are unchecked they nominate themselves they vote themselves in and they serve and they are not held accountable to the athletes at large of America they're only accountable to themselves in the last athlete council election 11 people ran for 10 slots. Eleven people ran for 10 slots. If we want to really get serious about cleaning up governance, we should start here. More as much as we talked about the professional council and and that to me is an easy fix that we we give NWSL's division 1 equal representation with division 1 on the men's side this is an area where we should focus our attention creating a player congress to create a level of accountability and and representation of all athletes because right now the athlete council in the way that it is named in the way that it is handled and governed and operated is a council that is only responsible for representing themselves this very small pool of national team athletes they're not responsible for the next generation of of soccer players they're not responsible for professional soccer players or adult amateur players they have they have no responsibility or requirement to represent them at a national level within the councils uh, of government of u.s soccer if there are issues for the athletes the only issues that they are primarily concerned with or tasked with be, being concerned with are issues that directly affect them. This is why corruption can easily occur in the current setup. You have 11 people run for 10 slots and you have this, this athlete council of 20 members that have been elected by themselves they voted on themselves and then they get in here and then they make deals or or could easily make deals for themselves have you noticed the number since 2018 the number of people that are now on television that are on the athlete council that weren't on television prior to that election an election that saw the athlete council vote as a block for carlos cordero an establishment candidate, a status quo candidate. 
a candidate that was, had been a, a member of the U.S. Soccer Board for 10 years, whose, whose worldview is that Major League Soccer must succeed no matter what. You had women voting in this block for a candidate that supports MLS must succeed no matter what. And they could argue, though, that's not what he stands for. That's not what I stand for. But actions speak louder than words. When we see time and time again that MLS gets deferential treatment, they get preferential treatment over everyone else. The actions speak louder than words. It, it, it doesn't matter whether you think you don't vote for that or you think that you don't stand for that. You do when you choose people and policies and decisions that favor Major League Soccer whether directly or indirectly. So the Athlete Council needs a, a reform, and we need a player congress that chooses athletes from around the country, from each of our states, that then nominate and vote on the 20 athletes on the Athlete Council. And at that point... Now the athletes have someone to answer to other than themselves. A Stu Holden now has to answer to the 50 people that were voted in to vote him in. Now we're creating layers of accountability. And now we're also creating layers of responsibility. Our athlete council members should be ambassadors, not to the national team players, but ambassadors to every single player in this country. And by making a few changes like this, we could totally reform and revolutionize the way our athletes are, are handled within U.S. soccer, are voted on within U.S. soccer, and the way that they are represented within U.S. soccer. So today we looked at some U.S. soccer issues. We looked at the U.S. Women's National Team. We looked at the Professional Council. And we looked at the Athlete Council. There are so many more issues, unfortunately, that, than, that, that we have, that U.S. soccer is facing that we have time to get to. Uh, and that's unfortunate, but it is what it is. Hope you enjoy your weekend. Hope uh, that it is a great weekend. Like I said, I hope you find some time to, uh, to provide some support to those affected by Dorian. Uh, just awful pictures coming out of the Bahamas. Thanks for tuning in. Facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or watch at DanielWorkman.com. Hit me up on Twitter or Instagram at Daniel Workman. Hope you have a great weekend. I'll see you back on Monday. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye. Goodbye.